0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Before we get started, a quick word from our friends at Squarespace. Whether you're starting a new business or launching a creative project, count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching and professional website that stands out from the rest. They've got those beautifully designed templates. They've got those customizable features. You don't need to know a lick of code with Squarespace. It all just works. So go ahead, make your next move. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase plus a free domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Here is the program. Hello,
2: and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform, for whom this podcast is named.
1: (laughs) It's like a weird, like, Evan Evan doing his robot game.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who's on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Matthew Cole. Matthew Cole is currently uh, an investigative reporter for The Intercept. Uh, he's previously done a lot of national security reporting for TV. He's one of the few people we've had on that's worked in real like TV news. He worked for NBC, he worked for ABC. He's written for a lot of magazines. He is... Uh, deep, deep into sourcing on national security issues, and he wrote this big piece about SEAL Team Six and uh, possible war crimes that they have committed over the years of the Afghanistan and Iraqi wars. A lot you, of
1: times on the show, when we have, when I've had people on who are deeply sourced like that, my first question is, "Who are your sources?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, that SEAL Team Six story, I just would like to say, is a legit holy shit story.
2: Yeah. And was a long time in the making. Uh, really hard to get people to talk about that sort of thing. Uh, and, and pretty, pretty incredible.
1: When you have a legit holy shit story and you want to let everyone know about it, send out an email. Here's the thing people I don't think get about emails. I'm going to go go a little long here. People think you could send out a Gmail from your Gmail account to uh, the entire world. This is not accurate. Your Gmail account, and you can send it to about 1,000 people. If you're building a project, if you're a writer, if you are a podcaster, if you're someone who's building a mailing list, you need a professional mailing list service. MailChimp is that service. 14 million people rely on it. Here's Evan Ratliff, Matthew Cole.
2: Matthew Cole, welcome to Long form Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. It's been... Few years, a few years, a few right. years ago. Yeah, there have been some um, marriages and babies in between. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I wanna start out talking about the um, the SEAL Team Six story, and then I think like we'll back up and talk about how you got to the point to being able to report that story. But it's so of the moment um, that I figured we'd start there. Um, so this is the story at The Intercept where you've been since 2015, I yeah. think? And came out at the beginning of this year, January, and give a little frame for what the story is about. People know about SEAL Team 6. They know about SEAL Team 6 from the bin Laden killing and from movies and TV. And so what is the sort of thumbnail of this story, which is very long and very, very deeply reported? Well, it's, you know, essentially that over
3: the last 15 years, SEAL Team 6 had sort of become America's most heralded military unit. certainly the best of the best and this elite heroic and valorous um, unit that has done these things that have become, you know, legend. And what I was really digging at was that there was a really a much, much darker side to America's most heralded unit that had never been told. And the reason why it hadn't been told is because it had been suppressed. And so, you know, it was a not quite a market correction, but kind of like a market correction on the narrative, on the overall narrative of what the post nine eleven wars had done to men who, who had the closest proximity to real violence. And, and it's not to take away from conventional units, but the style and type and scenarios in which they were fighting um, over thirteen years was unlike anyone else in the U.S. military. I mean Delta also and JSOC generally, and it has some real. Profound psychological effects on these guys, and one of the symptoms, I guess, you know, I had sources who kept likening this to a virus. Was that they had become almost ritualistic in Iraq and Afghanistan with committing war crimes, and it's not the majority of SEAL Team Six, but a a, a non-trivial amount of seals in that unit over a fifteen-year period had gone way over the moral, ethical, and and legal lines, and had never been held to account by the leadership at the command and so the story is really about failed leadership mm-hmm. at america's most heroic unit mm-hmm. and we should say jsoc is joint special operations Command. Right. yeah joint special operations command for which seal team six uh, essentially works for you've
2: been working on this for a couple of years yeah. as i understand it two and a half years yeah so years.
3: where where did this originate from, from i i had been working on um i was reporting on JSOC at the time, Joint Special Operations Command. And I was looking into some stuff about religion and sort of found some sources who, you know, said, yeah, that's the stuff that I was looking at was accurate, but it wasn't as serious as this other thing. Basically, I was told, hey, you really should look into this other thing. And the thing that they said was, you know, you should look into the fact that the SEALs are carrying hatchets Mm -hmm. on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And I, I had literally no idea what that was or what it was about. And, but I had a sort of a tip that there was this, there was a real issue that had been looked past for many years by the military, by the SEAL commands, and that there were war crimes attached to these hatchets. And that was sort of the beginning. Mm-hmm. That was actually, that was many years ago. It was probably four or five years ago. Oh, wow. um, but for, a, there was no, you know, you can't Google it. You know, it's a it was a, a very difficult story because I would Google things and there would literally be zero hits. <laughs> and that is either because the story is wrong when you're at the beginning of it, or because you've actually stumbled on something that has really been um, held very closely as a secret. And so with a few little strands of things that, and and from credible people, I mean, real credible people, uh, I knew that there was something there. And so I just started, I think of all of these kind of stories um, being a sort of a grad student who is going to um, learn everything there is about this topic and it would be an education and once I, because all of these, what these things have in common, the CIA, SEAL Team Six, parts of the military, um, the black world is that there are these insular communities that are by their nature and requirement, secret, classified. Um, And so penetrating that world and understanding the basic context of the people who populate that world requires you really understanding everything about the culture of these places. And so I just, that's where it really started.
2: And then when you're, when you're trying to find people that will be willing to, I mean, you eventually you're going to need to get someone on the inside who says, yes, I was there. Yes, I saw this. Yes, there was an investigation, but it never came out. Do you do a lot of Cold calling? Like do you say, okay, I'm I've got a list of names here of people that I know were in still Team Six. I'm just gonna cold call them and say, here's who I am, here's what I'm working on. And if they say fuck you, then fine. Or is it more like a chain? More like you got someone at the beginning and they say, Okay, if you really want to know about this, call this guy.
3: Both. It's it's absolutely both. I mean, I you always have sources who you hope will um vouch for you with someone else or will identify Individuals and say, Hey, this is where you should go knock on a door, or this is a person you can try to call. They know something about that. Um, That still may be a cold call. And you get, and I've gotten very polite and very impolite versions of go fuck yourself. And I used to have a little uh, sheet of paper that I wrote down when I got those responses, just as the, the vernacular that was given to me, like you're. shitty reporter and I don't talk to shitty reporters or, you know, I've had some very polite ones and um, I've had people threaten me with their dogs. I mean, you know, so some of it is absolutely cold. And I would say that sadly, when you're dealing with a classified or clandestine unit, half the battle is identifying people, figuring out who's even in the unit, Mm -hmm. who could have seen something, who could have known something. You can't look them up. There isn't a roster that is public Unless, like you did, like I did, I found one actually. I found a, a public roster yeah. uh, that, that is sort of hidden on the web um, that I believe they don't realize it is there. And I that was one, and I found it late in the process, but it was quite helpful. Um, so you're trying to use every tool in the bag to get people to talk. Um, overall, with anything like this, what I've done over the years is I've found sources who remain my sources for a long time. And I liken it. I think that water seeks its own level. And when you are looking at problems and trying to find solutions to a lack of accountability or real moral failures of leadership, for instance, which is a you know something that runs across the government, it runs across corporations, it runs it's a pretty universal theme in human life. What you're looking for are people on the inside, who see it the same way, who view it that way, and and when it's important or a big deal, want to say, "Hey, this needs attention." Mm-hmm. You know, we've tried our best on the inside to fix these problems. It, we failed. the The last, you know, solution is talking to a reporter. And um, you know, one of the things that I always like to say is that I don't want whistleblowers. I want sources. Whistleblowers are absolutely valuable and necessary. and oftentimes heroic. But I like sources, sources are in. Yeah, they, they whistleblowers sort of want it done too. Exactly, yeah. and, and one of the things you want ideally is someone on the inside of whatever you're looking at
2: continuing to watch and then pointing out when the public is being lied to. Yeah, um, it's such an interesting point because I think when a story like this comes out, like the public response I feel like to this type of investigation tends to be people in the military and government saying, this journalist doesn't understand this world these people are american heroes he's just trying to take it all down a notch or there's a political motivation but none of these stories could possibly happen or especially this type of story can't happen unless there are many people on the inside who actually want like you couldn't do it if there weren't people on the inside who right. didn't want this story to come out right i mean that's and the truth is is
3: that seal team 6 is, is filled with a ton of heroes with a lot of really great honorable and valorous men. And I've met some of them and they're really truly fantastic people. They're, they're absolutely the people you want to do these jobs and do this work and they're very good at it. But um, there is also this a really honestly sinister element to the unit that was allowed to fester because basically you had a bunch of morally weak officers who got themselves promoted up the chain off of the work of the enlisted and they maintained their popularity by you know letting these guys off their leash some of these guys off the leash and that has serious consequences over you know people don't realize and this is something that this was really important reason to do the story is that we're in a space that is historically unprecedented we have never been the United states has never been at war for this long mm-hmm. and for certainly for the last five six years but all through um, the wars after 9-11 special operations has seen the most action, has fought the most, they've gone on the most deployments. They um, fight the wars extremely up close and personal. And in that time, the military has never considered, dealt with, what the emotional and psychological impact is for you know the warriors, for lack of a better word, who are up against that the entire time. And to your point, That was one of the things, that was one of the motivations for the people who did talk Mm -hmm. to me, which were very senior people who said, we've failed these kids. You know, think about the impact that trying to decapitate someone, Um, you know, you're on a mission and your adrenaline is pumping and you're fighting, you know, against the Taliban, let's say, and you're very upset and you go out and you conduct an operation and you, you kill, you know, people who are have been identified appropriately as, as the enemy or as an adversary, and afterwards you try to cut someone's head off because you know you think they're savages. We'll treat them like savages and show them. Um, and they supposedly have like d- attempted to do the same, right? And, and to American soldiers who were killed, right? And you know, I, I had someone say to me, "Listen, if you did that once, you could understand the emotional response. You know, you're, you're heated, and you you think that that is." An appropriate way to fight uh, in the war and said you, you'd have sympathy for me he said, but this this isn't about one time this is multiple times and multiple deployments and what no one's thinking about is that that guy who does that goes home back to his family in a civilian life and will live with it for the rest of his life and we know and it's history tells us we know that those psychological scars do not heal Mm-hmm. Or they're very, very difficult to heal, mm-hmm. and so now you've got this psychological baggage that family is dealing with. And so, you know, I had guys kind of saying this ruins families, this tears apart families because, and they can't talk about it. They don't talk about it as a sense of shame, and there's the secrecy involved. And that it really hit me hard as a, not just as a journalist, but as a as a person. And so that to me was another reason to be dogged about the reporting to get to the place where. Um, we could publish it because there's something really important here.
1: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put these guys on hold for just a second, tell you a little bit about some sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up uh, is a company that's been making my dinner time possible lately. It's Blue Apron, and I've been very busy the last couple of weeks. I've been uh, slacking my uh, wife and I have a deal. I'm supposed to cook dinner a couple nights a week, and uh, I've been failing, that is the truth. I have been failing to, uh, to make dinner, and then I realized I could just use Blue Apron. I could get a restaurant quality meal at home in under 40 minutes for less than 10 bucks, Because Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. You can make a wonderful meal in under 40 minutes. Here are some of the meals that are uh, coming up in March. You ready for this? Salmon piccata with orzo and broccoli. Pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple. Vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes with crispy tortilla strips. Or maybe some uh, spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice, this stuff is delicious and it will make you uh, not a slacking jerk. If you are uh, trying to avoid being a jerk and not holding up your end of the dinner bargain, you should try Blue Apron. And if you go right now to blueapron.com slash longform, that's blueapron.com slash longform, you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash longform. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Also supporting the show today, Squarespace. Squarespace is the place to unleash your next big idea on the world. You can count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that is going to bring that big idea to life. Uh, As you know, I'm a devotee of Squarespace. I've used it on many projects. In fact, I just used it on a recent project. We launched a podcast, and uh, we used Squarespace. We needed something to host the podcast. We put it right up, and it has worked perfectly. People have been going to the website. They've been emailing us using Squarespace's email form. They've been playing the podcast using Squarespace's player. It's all just working because that's Squarespace's thing. It all just works, and it looks Super professional. Squarespace has these award-winning templates. Everything looks beautiful, whether it's on a laptop or a phone or a tablet. You don't need to know any code. There's nothing to install or patch or upgrade. If you hit a snag, you won't. But if you do, they've got award-winning 24-7 customer support. So make your next move. Put that big idea out into the world. Go to squarespace.com today. You can start a free trial and enter the code LONGFORM to get 10% off your first purchase Plus a free domain. Again, that's long form. L-O-N-G-F-O-R-M at squarespace.com. And let's get back to Matthew and Evan.
2: One of the interesting things about this story is that there are, there's like four stories in here. I, I, I made up four, but there are a lot and of different several. stories. Yeah. yeah, because there's the story of what really happened in the bin Laden raid. There's a story about an aid worker, you know, that that was a known story, British aid worker who was killed in an attempt to rescue her. And one of the things I was thinking when I was reading it is sort of, how did you know when it was time to publish this story? Like when, what was the sort of goal and when did you know you had reached it in terms of trying to capture the full scope of the story?
3: Well, so this story began in earnest when I was a producer at NBC News, and, mm-hmm. and I was working on it in like late 2014. And in the process of, of working on it, I I had these data points. I had a sense of the scope. You know, I interviewed probably you know six, six or seven people. Um, I discovered a, while I was reporting that the New York Times was also reporting on it, on mm-hmm. some of the same stuff, and we kept sort of bumping into each other, um, so to speak. And um, so there was a competitive pressure at the time and I was trying to rush to get what was, this This story was really meant to be initially three or four separate stories, individual stories. Mm-hmm. And the so SEAL Team 6, as a unit, there are about 300 SEALs total. The command itself is about 1,800 with support and admin and civilians. and But it's based on four assault squadrons. That's how it's divided. And the squadrons are the the subunits that go out and actually fight or do hostage rescues. And what I had found was that largely, generally, the war crimes that I was, you know, basically various forms of desecration and uh, acts of mutilation, sad to say, but sort of styles, you know, if this is a virus, each squadron had a slight variation on the virus. Mm -hmm. And so the story originally in my mind was um, about trying to tell... Each squadron's story because each squadron by the way they're colored right so there's gold blue red and silver but in their world they have identities gold are the Crusaders or the Knights red are the Redmen or Native American warriors blue are the pirates and have a Jolly Roger patch Uh, silver technically doesn't have a name but it Marauders they were the latest so they, they didn't quite have that same identity and so the way you had to tell this story was one by one, and that was originally how we were doing it, and when I was at NBC, we had a lot. We were competing with The Times. It was a lot of pressure to get it out in late 2014, very early 2015, and I was told that I didn't have enough. We didn't have anyone on the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a really big stumbling block, which I found, I understood on one hand, but I found very, very frustrating because there simply wasn't ever going to be anyone on the record talking about this stuff yeah. um, in a way that, that I thought would be useful. And then, well, then Brian Williams decided to tell his own story of valor about uh, Iraq. And I was in the investigative unit at NBC, and two things happened there. One was there was no way in hell NBC was going to be running a story about America's heroes doing bad things after their $10 million hero had told a tall tale. That's and, unfortunate. And
2: two, it was unfortunate. And two, I was on the investigative team looking into Brian Williams. And so you were, you were, you had been reporting stories, not just this one, a lot of stories, which were then presented on TV by Brian Williams. And then they, when that happened, they turned around and said, you now investigate Brian Williams? Yeah, it was a
3: huge, huge, oh shit moment at the network, which went sort of like this. If he told this story, what other stories have he told? Has he told that aren't true? And we have to scrub everything he's ever said, everything he's ever reported, to include appearances outside of the news programs, which, by and large, by the way, that's where he got into the most trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we became, you know, internal affairs essentially, which is never a fun, you know, it's an interesting thing to see and experience, but it it is not a fun experience, and it uh, it definitely will sour you on the job. So um, it was clear to both myself and my editor at the time, Richard Esposito, uh, who was a, a very fine editor, a great reporter, and who had encouraged me and let me run for a long time to go travel around the country and track this story down. Mm-hmm. And I'm really am very grateful to him for allowing me to do that um, at NBC. But very early on in the Brian Williams saga, we looked at each other and realized this story ain't ever going to happen here. So I made a decision personally uh, at at some point. I really never loved TV and certainly didn't want to. I couldn't let this story go, I guess is the best way to say it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted this story to live um, and to answer your question. You get to a level of detail in the reporting that becomes basically indisputable. Mm -hmm. And I decided I would get a little bit more and I'd leave NBC and go to The Intercept where they were eager and excited to publish, you know, this kind of journalism. And uh, so I got to The Intercept and I needed a little bit more, so I went back to the drawing board to find a few more people and then the New York Times published their story. And that muddied the waters a little bit for me because, you know, when the Times puts out a 6,000 word piece on the dark side of, you know, the secret world of SEAL Team 6, they put down the marker, they set some of the narrative and it's hard to battle against that. So I decided to take a break Mm -hmm. and let, I, I thought you know, they did some very, very good reporting in their story, but I thought they missed it. They certainly missed what I had, I thought. And as I kept going and I saw how they did, they did sort of a one long story too, that there was a way to tell this story as a series of events that were tied together. There was a through line. And I still thought of it as being like, three or four stories that you mm-hmm. would run on consecutive days but they had a through line um, and i don't remember when but at some point i had gotten enough from new sources to realize that i felt very <coughs> comfortable telling the story with a level of detail that was convincing mm-hmm. that was was very strong and so you know it, it, it happened organically you know I, I, it didn't there wasn't one day and there wasn't one source that provided you know I would get a source and then I'd go back and I'd learn something new and I'd go back to this source or I'd go get a new you know another new source you know you are triangulating all of this reporting is triangulation and so I got there and then and then there had been enough time between um, I think the, the time story that we felt you know we could do it and and then we got into the election season yeah. and um, that was pretty crazy so you know we we just decided let's do it before the inauguration and you know, see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was a it was a long process, but in the end, I was very very happy with I have my editor Roger Hodge is a brilliant editor
2: who turned five stories into one. Well, we should also say. I mean, I think people in the media world sometimes have strong views about the Intercept in one way or another. That's that's my understanding. That's the ambient understanding of mine. But um, but that's a long time to. That's a lot of leash, I guess, to, to be working on something. It's not something you get at most places. No, and that's why I left NBC, and that's why I went to
3: The Intercept, and it was something that I thought about a lot. You know, you go from a place like NBC, where it's a huge brand, it's a global brand, and they have a they have a real legitimacy, if you will, for what they put out. But you know, I, I worked for ABC before NBC, mm-hmm. and uh, my experience with Network news was pretty depressing. I mean, I I think it is not great journalism. TV is really, really good at big events, Mm -hmm. earthquakes, disasters, you know, things where you really do tune in um, and watch what, you know, the the visual is important and they can do coverage very well. But reporting, they are not strong at, period. And it is a, a very depressing experience, to be honest with you to go to work and know that you're worth working with and among very smart, very educated people uh, who mean well but I think don't get it. I mean, honestly, don't get what the point is of what journalism is supposed to be about and what we're supposed to do. And I don't say that in a super high-minded way, but you know, I've seen enough to know that it's just there's something wrong with television networks, network Mm. news. Uh, And The Intercept was a place where they said, hey, we need this. We need your content. We need what you're doing. And uh, Jeremy Scahill was a friend of mine who I'd known professionally for several years. And I thought, hey, you know, they may be new, they may be disliked, but they're not afraid. So
2: I am interested in the environment of working for a publication that does have a certain profile in people's minds. So there is potentially a reaction to The Intercept because of largely because of Snowden that people might have. And I'm wondering, does that change your work at all? Like, do you feel like your work has to be a certain way? And does it affect you?
3: Uh, The short answer is, I don't know. But the long answer is Glenn Greenwald is a very polarizing figure, number one. And I knew that going in to, you know, whether I thought I should join The Intercept and he does something that is very specific which is really he's a journalist that he works mostly on commentary and columns and you know in the traditional op-ed essentially and he has his own audience and a huge one and he built that and snowden went to him because of that and and I think that that's all the more I have that much more respect for glenn knowing that even that that he was sought because of his voice and um, his voice is really a really crucial and critical one, especially I think in this era, um, media landscape and the rest of The Intercept is this place that is committed with really smart people and really dedicated people, journalists and editors and researchers. We have an incredible staff uh, towards accountability, journalism, investigative reporting, there's no question that, you know, I've talked to colleagues, no question that we get, you know, you cold call someone and you say you're from The Intercept and there may be a, you know, I hate The Intercept. And I had someone on the Hill tell me, everyone hates you, but everyone's reading you (laughs) in Congress. And I thought, that's all I want to hear. That's exactly what I want to hear. You know, the work that I do does not make me friends. And so, uh, you know, I don't agree politically, necessarily, or even uh, as a reporter with everything that is published on The Intercept. But by and large, I absolutely do believe in the mission. And I certainly believe that um, would, the press needs to be far more skeptical and adversarial. And one of the things that comes out of that is the ability to, to, to see and publish stories that are, that are important, that tell a really important truth. And along the way may say, hey, you know, your heroes, some of your heroes have done some bad things. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, uh, know, it's funny in in reporting the SEAL Team 6 story, one of the things that that was mentioned to me several times by several different sources was that, you know, I sort of was asking, would ask around, why hasn't this stuff come out? How did they suppress it? And I I had guys on the inside saying to me, have you ever seen a story about how the New York Fire Department and firefighters looted? 9, on 9-11 that looted parts of the World Trade Center. And I said, no. I said, I said, yeah, that's right. I said, well, they did. We know they did. They stole money from ATMs that had burned down and, and taken stuff. And there's video footage of it. Um, but no one would report it because 9-11 was this unbelievably horrible event. And the firefighters had lost so many. It was sacred. And so it just... People won't do it. They wouldn't put that story out. And, you know, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know that I would put out the story of the firemen uh, allegedly looting on, you know, in the days after 9-11 in in what was left of the World Trade Center. Um, But you're hitting something there. And I thought that was interesting coming from people from SEAL Team 6. You know, hey, it's because we are these heroes and we do really great, important stuff. And so no one wants to speak ill of us. Right. Or
2: even um, view them as human beings who might be subject to the same difficulties, especially in this environment that they've been placed into, that any human being would be subjected to. Yeah, and that's, and, and that's, that's exactly it. My, my view of them is, and this story
3: was really about just doing presenting a three-dimensional picture of what SEAL Team 6 is about. I mean, what, what it, it really is for these guys and what has really happened and what the effects are. And some of it is bad. Most of it is good. But mm-hmm. some of it is bad, and the bad stuff is important. It needs to be aired, both to 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 eradicate it and to improve it in terms of fixing their problems, um, and also for Americans to understand what the consequences of 15 years of war are.
2: So let's let's. I want to go back a little bit and talk about how you came to be comfortable reporting on this type of story, both uh, the sort of emotional component, but also and the reporting component. Because I know you went to J school. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people that go into J School who look at sort of national security reporting and, you know, really digging in investigative reporting and say, like, I want to do that. And then the question is sort of like, how do you get from being a J School person to actually starting to do that and knowing how to develop sources? And I'm curious if was there someone along the way who kind of pulled you into that world or did you leap in on your own? Uh, I leapt in on my own. I was at
3: Columbia for 9-11 mm-hmm. and reported on 9-11 on 9-11. Um, and that was a turning point for me. I went to journalism school and I really didn't know, I had no experience, I'd been out of, I was only a year out of college, I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't written anything other than some nonfiction in, in college. Um, as far as I was concerned, I was pretty unqualified to be in journalism school. But at any rate, um, 9-11 uh, sort of focused my interest on foreign policy, foreign affairs, national security, and because I had no experience, I was graduated with no job. And so I just did it on my own. And and it was a very ugly freelance path as Mm -hmm. a print reporter, you know, trying to write for magazines, trying to write online to basically answer questions that I had for myself. I mean, in some ways, what I was doing at the beginning and maybe even now is a little selfish from the standpoint of I have these questions and I, I can't go anywhere else to find the answers. So I have to get them and answer them myself. Mm-hmm. And that for me has tended to result in stories that I feel lucky to be able to, someone will pay me to,
2: to go do. And, um, but how did you manage it at the beginning when you're just, you're basically on your own. <laughs> you're, you're freelance out of the gate. And then you're talking about doing stories.
3: Yeah. So what, what I did specifically was when I got out, eventually I ended up as a fact checker. And I was making money on a day-to-day basis as a fact checker. First at New York Magazine and then at ESPN the Magazine. Mm-hmm. And ESPN the Magazine had a great schedule of publishing every other week. And so the fact checking work was basically one week on, one week off. But the pay was actually very good. And so I was living in New York and I had access to all of their resources, you know, things like Nexus Lexus or, you know, phones and stuff like that and paid well. And what I would do is I would work on stories on the side mm-hmm. and um, I, I don't have a way. I literally, my first story, my first major feature, magazine feature was a story about a professional soccer player in Philadelphia who, who had OCD, who solved a murder of a homeless woman that was absolutely impossible to solve. And it was this incredibly true story. And I heard about it from my roommate at the time (laughs) and decided that was a story I was going to do. And so on my off days, I went down to Philadelphia and just started reporting the story and got to a place where I had enough information to know I could do a pitch and, you know, pitch it out. And eventually that story actually ran in ESPN, the magazine. And, you know, one story begets another. And so then I decided I was going to go to uh, Pakistan. Uh, I had an opportunity to go to a, a specific place in northwestern Pakistan in 2005, I believe. And ESPN, you know, I didn't have an assignment initially, but I had the ability to take time off and go for three or four weeks. And then I convinced them to let me do a story that would take me only three days out of the three or four weeks I was going to be there about a polo tournament at the highest altitude I in the world. read that
2: story. That story is
3: wild. And um, that story, just the assignment on that story. Paid for the entire trip plus some money, so you know that trip. I had hoped to make a story about where I was going, and I couldn't. And when I got back, I couldn't sell it. There wasn't, but the experience there and the reporting that I did really opened me up. And I decided I had been along the Afghan-Pak border, and decided that there was this interesting thing where we had been. We were probably um, we're in this northwest corner of Pakistan uh, near a place called Chitral. And we were three hours walk from the Afghan border. And on the other side of this invisible line, there was a, a real war going on. And yet the people in the valley where we were, they were like, uh, we don't ever hear anything. There's no gunshots. There's no we don't helicopters or jet fighters. And I was so fascinated by that concept. I decided that the next summer or whenever I would have the opportunity that I would go to Afghanistan in bed with the U.S. military and specifically get myself to the Pakistan side of where I had been in Afghanistan where as it happened there was some really difficult by the Afghanistan sorry the Afghanistan side sorry, the of Afghanistan side of, Pakistan, the, yeah. uh, of the of where I'd been in Pakistan and in that area in the northeast of Afghanistan there was some really really awful fighting going on and so that's what I did so the next year I you know I re- wrote the story about uh, this polo tournament I did some other uh, reporting and then I just with no assignment I've Got myself credentialed and flew to uh, Kabul, and got myself embedded. Uh, went into Bagram and embedded up in the n- northeast of Afghanistan for a month, and you know that led to some stories for Salon, and um, and I met Mark Shoney, who was a, my first editor. He was editor at Salon, then later came and joined me at ABC, and then we went together to NBC, and so I worked with him for many years, and. So I did that. It was like patchwork, and in the process, to go to answer your question about sourcing, over time, what I experienced was when I went, especially after Pakistan. Once I had been to Pakistan, I went to a place where, you know, prior to 2005, there probably had been no more than 30 Americans that had been there in the last 50 years. Uh-huh. The only Americans who had been there in any numbers had been CIA and military people after 9/11. And so that was a real good way to open the door to introduce yourself to someone who may be a retired government official to say, hey, listen, I've been here. You know, it was just a, a something that we could share. It mm-hmm. was like a, you know, they're beautiful places, but they were hairy. And, and I was too young and stupid to really think about some of the consequences. Uh, I just went and it gave me, uh, an entree into talking to folks who probably otherwise wouldn't be that interested in speaking with me. So, you know, each time you're doing one story, you're getting, you know, you're picking up a source here, you're picking up a source there, and it, it just builds. It's just, you know, I, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life professionally, but you're learning the whole way. It's just a
2: it's a constant form of education. So you, you also got kind of like wrapped up in this strange situation, which We've talked about it before, so I know you can't talk about it in in detail, but in broad strokes, someone who worked at the CIA ended up going to prison for leaking information. Uh, It was prosecuted a few years ago, went to prison, and then your name sort of like surfaced in connection with this case as someone who had communicated with this person. And the thing I'm most interested in around that is what that experience was like, because it feels like... You're you're developing these sources, you're building up these sources, you're getting all this information, and then suddenly there's like a public situation in which you are, if not accused, like there's talk like, oh, somehow this guy's bad situation is connected to talking to you. And like, what does that do to your reporting at that point? Yeah, it's a really good
3: question. Um, I don't, as a rule, comment publicly about John Kiriakou and and the CIA officer. And his case, you know, generally, I will say that I thought the government's case against him was really unfair, very punitive, and very, very unfortunate. Um, As a rule, I also I don't confirm or deny, you know, the identity of sources. I will say that, you know, it is a very uncomfortable position to be as a reporter, the subject of, or at least have a role in a bit part in a story in a very public story, Mm -hmm. Uh, and. I'll say that I learned a ton about being on the other side of the reporter's pen being which reported on reported on and you know professionally it was it was difficult. It's no fun to wake up one morning and read parts of your email or things that you wrote in the email being published in the New York Times or you know in the press. Uh, it's a very uncomfortable experience and you know for a while it was challenging. What was important there for me, journalistically, and as a, someone who's trying to get sources, is that I, I, I was very fortunate and very happy that I didn't lose any sources mm-hmm. from it. You know, I, I generally, you know, the people who I've worked with and know me, knew me very well, and so they were very supportive. It may have hurt me in terms of getting sources, new sources who were simply not interested in talking to a reporter who was connected to a former CIA officer who ended up in prison for leaking information. And you know there were days certainly where I thought it was possible I was gonna have to give up reporting on the national security beat. yeah um, but one, I you know I felt very confident and sure that I was on very safe grounds as a reporter and two, It's a big world out there, and there's a lot, there's plenty to report on. And I had already, at that point in time, I'd already really moved to reporting on the military and less on intelligence uh, or specifically the CIA. So, you know, I just put my head down and I still made cold calls. And, you know, I was employable and employed, and it, it, it was challenging, but I really did learn a lot about being on the other side of the. The pen
2: did it make you more paranoid about security
3: it, yes it did in fact it was uh, from that experience that i discovered the need for encrypted email and that there were real issues around operational security as a reporter and that there was there were not just professional reasons but sort of ethical reasons to protect yourself and your sources and what was unfortunate for me was discovering that there had been reporters who had known about and had been using encrypted email for years. And um, it just never occurred to me that that was something that one should be doing. And Mm -hmm. in retrospect, I felt like a real idiot. And at this point now, we've gone so far in the direction of surveillance that I basically don't use email. Email is a, you know, I email my mother maybe Mm -hmm. for something, but I don't use email for anything, Mm -hmm. uh, anything of substance. Even encrypted email? Yeah, even, I mean, I use encrypted email, but it's not of substance. Anyway, I just don't do email. So that is a direct line between, you know, that experience and and that. And um, I think um, I'm a better
2: reporter for it. Yeah. So we talked about sort of the end point of your TV Career and how it, where you ended up feeling about TV, but why did you get, why did you make the jump to TV in the first place? Uh, My wife was pregnant and my book advance was out.
3: (laughs) Uh, I was uh, freelancing. It's a classic story. Yeah. So, really, it's a traditional story. Someone going into TV reporting. It was a traditional story of a print reporter who despised TV, being offered a job that I wasn't even looking for, but uh, needed health insurance. And um, by the way, reporters, I don't think print reporters fully understand this but television networks pay really well (laughs) they pay like 30 to 40 percent more than print and there's a cost but it pays well and so I had a good job and um, you know I also wanted I had been doing more magazine stuff and long long form at the time and what I was struggling with professionally was I had a lot of good facts and news but I didn't have a real venue to do it on a very quick turnaround Mm -hmm. and you know network news with Website and with TV, you could, you're in the daily reporting game. And I wanted some of that. So there was a,
2: it worked out well. And I went to the investigative unit at ABC. You were breaking Um, stories. I mean, stories about black sites, you know, stories about terrorist raids and all sorts of plots and everything else. Like it was a different metabolism. But at a certain point, you must have decided you didn't want that metabolism anymore.
3: Yeah. I think over time, it was always frustrating in TV the limitations of the medium, and especially when I have sourcing that doesn't go on camera. You know, Mm -hmm. The big thing in TV is you can do a story, even a straightforward story, who's going to talk about it? You need someone to sit down for an on-camera interview. And when you are reporting largely on very secret things, that just doesn't exist. And that doesn't make for compelling TV. And so the argument inside all of the networks at the time was, do we do stories that don't look good or have any visual element to it that's worth looking at? Is it really just wallpaper. is what we call it. Wall, you know, just wallpaper of snippets of of sentences that are in the script right, to yeah. indicate what someone may have said. Or do we put out really important stories? And l- largely, what I found was that the networks were moving towards putting that out on the web, uh-huh. which was not a bad um, solution to it. But of course the web doesn't pay the bills and so there was still a need to put stuff on television and i still had this problem of how do i put an anonymous source on television i don't so i was finding that i was frustrated with the limitations of what i could do in terms of being allowed to report out a story i mean i'm i'm to my own detriment i am uh, selfish and obsessive about reporting and so i want a long leash and i want to be allowed and you know i had my wings clipped a few times because I just took too long on something, um, and I understood it totally, but it was just you know it's frustrating, and you want to you know there's a there there, and it's just going to take a while to dig, and um, I would get buried under you know a mountain of daily reporting that mm-hmm. became uh, TV is a really it's a, a very exhausting workflow and work process producing, editing, writing scripts, and it didn't leave much room for me to sort of go long, long term. And that, you know, I think the business in general
2: suffers from that. But in TV, it was really uh, pronounced. I found I was going back and looking at some of your old TV stuff. And one of the funniest things I found funny, not funny, but there's a story from years ago about the Russian government essentially trying to blackmail. It seemed like probably fake a U.S. diplomat with a sex tape supposedly filmed in a Moscow hotel room. And it was actually like a weird window into future discussions, if not future reality. And I wonder how much you're now, if there's any pressure to sort of get more political with your reporting, like, do you feel like you need to be more topical or because you left TV, you did it specifically to have this space to be able to not do that?
3: Well, I think it doesn't have to be more political, but I do have to, I think, and I intend to report on this administration, but through the lens of national security, Mm -hmm. uh, through the lens of foreign policy, I think I have something in the works now that is based off of, and and had Trump not won, it wouldn't have been a story because it wouldn't have mattered, but he won. and, And so there's a new administration and there are people that are filling these jobs. And it came out of long obsessive reporting on something else that hasn't yet been published and may get published, but it, it will now take a back seat to something that is more timely and important. And, um, so I think, I think one thing that I've noticed i just got back from Washington is the, the hyperventilating that's going on right now in the media with the new administration. And some of it, I understand some of it I don't understand. And, and what I don't understand is the job hasn't changed our job. Reporting hasn't changed. It's still all the same. And I keep reading this access journalism is dead and blah, blah, blah. It is not dead, maybe in a coma at the moment, but access journalism will always be around. And, you know, this administration will provide access to someone, to publications and certain reporters, and it'll be interesting to see who they are. I think what's really interesting and is a hopeful sign is that the Washington press corps has realized that access journalism sucks and that they need to be Unbelievably skeptical. And it's unfortunate that their skepticism is geared now only to the new administration and then it hadn't been for the previous administration, which is, you know, again, it's like going back to what the job is. So I don't, I'm not going to do anything different other than I will mix, I'll continue to mix between something that is very current mm-hmm. um, and necessary, maybe faster, it may not be as long, uh, and then something that is. I want to say historical because that sounds, makes it sound old, but more like it just takes a long time to get everything together and put it out. And that's a I struggle with that. I'm really slow. I'm a slow writer. I'm a really slow reporter. I, to some extent, I try to come up with, or not come up with, but I end up in a counter-narrative scenario. And once the narrative has been established, to go against it convincingly, you have to have an unbelievable amount of detail mm-hmm. and reporting because you have to show you know, these are the real events. And, you know, it's not unlike in this SEAL Team 6 story dealing with the Bin Laden raid. and We're now on our fourth or fifth version of the Bin Laden
2: raid. And, and there will be more, by the way. There yeah. were,
3: there, there's going to be another. There's going to be at least two more. And hmm. I'm, I'm going to do one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's exactly it. You know, you have these events that are in some ways incredibly public, but they're hidden behind a veil of classification and no administration. This is just a, a fact no administration is above hiding and omitting certain facts to put out a narrative that makes them look good for some reason or other all human nature but on the issue of national security military foreign policy where things are classified they have this out which allows them to hide you know you can't do it in domestic policy because it's not secret, and ultimately it comes out. There's paperwork. There are people who will talk. So the government, you know, administrations have a harder time lying, and they'll so they'll spin, right? But We see it all the time in campaigns. You know, campaigns will come out. Candidates will say something that is a either totally dishonest, not necessarily a lie, but totally dishonest, or just you know a spin that is really unfair uh, to the truth mm-hmm. and to the facts, and they get there's a fact-checking process the media hopefully does and does it and they're doing that knowing that someone's going to fact-check them well no administration has to worry about that on the secret side on the classified side and so they put out a story and even if the original bin laden story was 85% true what i can tell you is is that those that 15% which doesn't seem like a lot if it was fully known would drastically change the public's view of that event right? yeah and that's the, you know, whether you're talking about the bin Laden raid or you're talking about, you know, Trump's plan to uh, reopen black sites, whatever they're hiding is the key component. And the bin Laden raid, you know, I won't say it was fun to, to report that story, but I, I did find moments where things were amusing, where you had ultimately two people who have made a lot of money off of their versions of the story. And you look at it and you realize that since three or four days prior to the raid they effectively were competing and fighting over who was going to profit who was going to get out and tell the story
2: before the raid before Before the the raid raid.
3: before the raid they sort of public versions of matthew Bissonette and robert O'Neill's telling of that is that they expected to die that it was a one-way mission but at the same time three days before they leave to go to Afghanistan to get ready to stage for the operation. They get into a, a, an argument, a screaming match that had to be ended by their teammates, they had to be separated um, over uh, how they would work out the story. That was their confidence in level in that they were going to be coming back home. And so you start digging through that and you realize that they're both telling these versions of the story that, um, you know, the basic elements are true, right? I mean, the SEALs were ordered to go into Pakistan to kill bin Laden. They found bin Laden. They killed bin Laden. They flew back. I mean, the, that that is the basic truth. And there's no, and everyone sticks to that part of the story, but the smaller details, which accentuate, you know, or embellish, you know, one's valor or daring or, you know, as if it was necessary. I mean, you know, it's a pretty dramatic thing to do no matter how you, you know, even if what I believe and what I've reported is that, you know, these guys were told you're going to go in and you're going to shoot every male on site, regardless of whether they're armed, and we don't expect them to be particularly uh, heavily armed. And so we are effectively going to go murder uh, a sick, old, crippled bin Laden. You know, that doesn't fit the image of you know, what we think of sending our military forces to do. It's certainly, um, there's some issues with international law on that score. And when you dig into it, you realize that it, it, it does not appear as... Uh, it it was valorous and it was a truly important military moment in in U.S. military history. But the story was told in such a way by the U.S. government and then by the SEALs who came out to say that they were involved themselves in such a way that indicated a a lot more drama than than was really involved. And a lot more deception than was otherwise acknowledged. And in digging into that, it was entertaining at times to see the sort of childish or the, the lack of maturity involved in, in in particular for those two men uh, that was at some moments, some levity
2: from what was otherwise a very dark story. But then that, that takes me back to sort of like how you feel about publishing and revealing these these type of details, because in some ways, I mean, obviously there were going to be people who said, you know, thank you for telling us the full story. and we're glad this is out, but you also know you're gonna catch a lot of shit for it. And like being the person who undoes the dramatic heroic, heroic story is like being like the scientist who invalidates some study that everyone loves that had a conclusion that everyone wanted to be true. That's not the glamor uh, position. When, you, when you're when you ready to publish a story like this, are you sort of comfortable with the blowback that's gonna come with it? Or do you have to steal yourself and say, okay, this is gonna be shit for a few weeks no, I've amazingly come to the point where I don't
3: feel I'm not concerned at all about the blowback. I always think about, and there are always in these stories smaller decisions in in each piece where you are debating whether certain things should be published or not. Sometimes it's the sensitivity, sometimes it's an identity, sometimes it's um, you know certain details, and you I go through the there's a sort of mental checklist of things that I think about, is this newsworthy? Is this important to the story for the purpose of um, public accountability or accounting? And there are certain things that I'll scrap from a story because in the end it feels gratuitous to publish. Um, That said, there are still things that I've published where, you know, yeah, I get hit hard. Uh, This story actually is not one of them, believe it or not. I I did a story um, earlier in. 2016 about Chris Kyle, um, mm-hmm. the author of and the subject of the movie American Sniper, who he had lied about his awards, his military awards, including one significant one, which was the Silver Star, which is a third highest award you can get in war, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal to lie about it. It's uh, certainly in the military community, and the amount of hate mail I got for that was a lot. But I was I knew it was coming, and I didn't once think I shouldn't do the story because I'm going to get. You know, I was going to piss off a lot of people about their heroic, this hero. Um, and by the way, that story is much worse than I ever reported, and I'm going to report more on it. I mean, there's there are some significant, really, truly significant uh, lies and deception in some of the bigger uh, SEAL stories over the last 15 years. And one of the things that is so interesting to me but also validating is that in the reporting what i discovered is all of these things that i'm reporting on they are not secrets inside the seal community these are well-known things now they're secret from everybody else um but everyone and their mother knows you know i would be astonished that i'd find out i'd casually mention something that i discovered to someone and be like and they'd be like oh yeah i knew about that in you know 2006 and everyone knows that and and yet no one wants to report it or no one wants to see it in print. And I just don't work that way. And if it has real uh, news value and that it can serve the public some good to be exposed, then I don't have a problem publishing
2: it. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That is it for this week's long-form podcast. Many thanks to Matthew Cole for coming into the studio. Thanks to our editor this week, Janelle Pfeiffer, and to our intern, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, And as always, to our sponsors, Squarespace, Blue Apron, and MailChimp. I'm Evan Ratliff, and we will see you next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone